welcome to the Truth Ward Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have benefited from this podcast or any of Olin's books, we'd like to ask you to leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you purchase your books. Now, here's Olin. If you have a Bible, let's open up to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and let me pray for us while you turn there. Father, thank you for that testimony. Lord, that's really a testimony of your grace and your goodness, your pursuit, your kindness. And I pray for these next few minutes together, really, Lord, the next two days together at this conference, and really, the rest of all of our lives. Would you be pursuing us? Uh, Would you be wooing us? Would you be trying to draw us to yourself? Uh, whether it's in a very gentle and kind way, whether it's in a little bit of a severe tug-of-war type way, or would you do whatever it takes to get each one of ours attention so that we could have a more enjoyable, fruitful life with you that honors you and brings a lot of joy into our lives and into the lives of those around us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 18, and we're going to look at a man, a story about a man that had an encounter with Jesus, uh, and he's a lot like us in some ways. Uh, You know, there are four different gospel accounts, four different men that were eyewitnesses or new eyewitnesses of Jesus when he walked on the earth, and they wrote down some of the stories of his life, some of his words. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this specific encounter with this one guy who we call today the rich, young ruler. Because when you read all three accounts, you learn that he was rich, he was young, he was a ruler. And so if he was alive today, he probably would have been one of us. Right? You may say, I'm not rich now. Well, compared to most of the world you are. Uh, and with a college degree in the United States of America, you're going to be rich. Okay? Again, compared to most of the world. You're going to be a leader. Probably are already a leader. And you're young. So this sounds like one of us. Uh, He grew up in Israel, which was kind of the Bible Belt of that day. Just like we're growing up in the southeastern United States, the Bible Belt of the world. So there's a lot of similarities here. But he had a problem. He lacked assurance of salvation. Although he he may have even been involved in the temple and the worship and stuff there. But he wasn't sure that if he died, he was right with God, he'd go to heaven. Have any of you ever struggled with that? I have. I find that very common. Uh, Just ask yourself this question. Don't worry. I'm not going to ask you. This is not going to be part of the discussion question after the talk unless you want it to be. I'm not going to ask you to turn and share with your neighbor. So just talk to yourself for a second in your mind and be very honest. If you were to die tonight, right now, today, on a scale of 1 to 10, some of you have heard this question before because it's a great clarifying question. 10 being, I'm 100% sure I'm right with God, I'd go to heaven when I die. Zero being, I'm 100% sure I'm not right with God. I'd go to hell if I died. And five being, I'm kind of 50-50, somewhere in the middle. Just think for a second. Where are you? Just, I want you to take a second right now and think. Scale of 1 to 10, you died right now. How sure are you that you go to heaven? Okay, think about it. Well, I'll do that with the microphone. Uh, now, here's the thing. If your answer is any less than 10, that's a problem. You realize that? That's concerning. Uh, because... There are a lot of decisions in life. Let's say you drove. And this morning you woke up and y'all went to Waffle House to get some breakfast and you came back and you're like, I don't remember if I locked my car or not. 
Scale of one to 10, I think I'm about an eight. I think I locked my car, but I'm not sure. No big deal. Your car's probably not that nice, right? Probably nothing in there worth stealing anyway. Somebody breaks in, ah, don't worry, Nashville. I think it's kind of a safe city. You're okay. But if you're talking about your eternal destiny, the next life, guys, is a zero-sum game. And what I mean by that is you either win really big or you lose gigantically. There is no in-between. There is no purgatory. There is no halfway. There is no second chance. You will either reign in heaven like a king or a queen for all eternity in pure joy and bliss and happiness and blessedness, or you will suffer for all eternity away from the goodness of God under his anger and wrath forever. And I know that's not popular to think about. That's not fun. That's not nice. We don't like it. None of that matters. It's true. And it's a reality that's coming for you and for me. Sooner or later, it's coming. It might be 80 years away. It might be 80 seconds away. It's coming. You better be serious about nailing down your assurance of salvation. Now, let me tell you a little bit of my story. I grew up in southeast Georgia. A very godly family. Very serious about Jesus, the Bible, spirituality. I have a very vague memory of when I was about seven or eight years old, a little boy, like one of these little kids you see running around the back, of my dad using like this little booklet of the bridge diagram. How many of y'all have heard of the bridge diagram? Probably a lot of you, right? It's like there was a cliff over here and it had a little stick figure. This represents all humanity and humanity sinful, we're broken, we're messed up. And then there was a cliff over here just had a circle representing God. And the cliff was supposed to be an infinite Separation bigger than the Grand Canyon. There's no amount of good works that this little man can do to work his way to God. But then you draw in the middle, Jesus on the cross, and it's like that's why God came to us and He died. He lived a perfect life. He died the death we deserve. He rose again. If you put your faith in Him, you can be forgiven. You can have a relationship with God. You can have assurance of salvation. Listen, as much as a seven or eight year old can really understand that and believe that and put their faith in Christ, I think I did. But here's the problem with that, if there is a problem. When you're seven or eight, there's not much temptation you really deal with at age seven or eight, right? I mean, that was a powerful testimony of the dramatic things that was going on in a young woman's life in college. You don't typically hear that from a seven or eight-year-old because when you're seven or eight, it's like, well, after dinner, if mom says only eat one cookie, don't lie and eat two, right? If your dad says be nice to your sister, don't punch her in the face. I mean, it's like other than that, it's like, what are you really dealing with? But pretty early on, as I come in really later into elementary school, into middle school for sure, it's like you start getting introduced to pornography, alcohol, you know, sneaking out of your house, hooking up with girls. And I'm like, wait a second. When I made this commitment to Jesus Christ when I was seven years old, I hadn't been through puberty yet. It's like everything has changed for me now. So I I came into high school kind of in the full-blown party lifestyle already. Now listen, I knew what I was doing was wrong. But I kind of had a love-hate relationship with it. Can any of you identify with that? I mean, I used to party as hard as I could with all the guys I played football with. Now they still knew I was like the Bible kid going to church and having to memorize verses because that's what my parents made me do. So a lot of times we'd all get hammered out of our mind. We'd end up at somebody's house and they'd start like asking me Bible trivia. They're like, hey dude, what happened with the dinosaurs? I'm like, I don't know, you know. But you guys need to repent or you're going to go to hell. 
Just a total side note. Drunken evangelism is not very effective. None of those guys prayed to receive Christ for me that night. There were other nights that I would come home by myself. You know, and when the girl was gone and the alcohol started to wear off and the music's not playing anymore and I'd lay in bed and I'd almost cry myself to sleep. Because I'm like, I hate what I'm doing, but I love what I'm doing. And there'd be nights I'd lay in my bed and I'd be like, God, I promise I'll never do this again. And that would last about five days until the next party happened. Like, ah, screw it. Okay, anybody identify with that? Summer before my senior year, one of my buddies that I played football with, his dad was going to be out of town, so he's having this massive party at his double-wide trailer. I told you I grew up in southeast Georgia, all right? Bunch of kegs. But the next, here's the problem. The next morning, I was supposed to wake up and go to church camp, right? Because I had to. I didn't have a choice. That's what my parents made me do. So here was my plan. I'm going to go to this keg party and have the greatest night of my life. I'm going to get more drunk than I've ever been drunk in my life. I'm going to try to hook up with more girls in one night. And it's just going to be like, greatest party of my life. And the next one, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go to church camp and I'm just going to stop everything. Now, let's just be honest with each other. That's the stupidest plan in the universe. <laughs> that plan doesn't have a prayer of working. Or maybe I should say, the only chance that plan has of working is a prayer that God shows up and blesses it. And listen, he did. And, and I can't explain why other than God did some supernatural miracle in my heart. And it's like, I'm not saying I got perfect, but it's like, I quit the alcohol and so many things, just cold turkey. I changed. Now, if you were to ask me one, two, three, four years after that, when did you become a Christian? Which, I, how many of you grew up in, in like Baptist churches or at least kind of Baptist circles? Just show hands, all right? You know, I grew up Baptist. And it's like, that's a big deal kind of for Baptists. Like, when did you become a Christian? And I used to tell people, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it happened when I was seven or eight. Maybe it didn't happen when I was 15. And you know what? I don't care. I don't care about when. I just care about if. And that's what I care about for y'all. Doesn't matter if you can say the date and the time. What matters is, can you say, I don't know when it happened, but I'm sure it has happened. And how do you know? Because he's working in my life today. I'm growing today. I'm not perfect. It's not about the perfection of your life. It is about the direction of your life. Right? I'm sure not what I used to be. I'm not what I ought to be yet. But I'm growing. I'm maturing. Now, this guy. He had a small view of God. He had a small view of sin. He had a small view of salvation. And I want us to look at his story. So, pick up Luke chapter 18 and start in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, speaking of Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now think about it. Okay? Some of you guys are really involved in campus outreach. Been doing some evangelism training. This is, and some of you are probably like, I want to talk to other people about Jesus, but I'm kind of intimidated. This is a softball. This is what you pray for, right? It's like, what if back in your dorm room, somebody just knocks on the door and says, can you please tell me what to do with eternal life? How to inherit it? You're like, dude, I got this. I didn't have to initiate. No awkward transition. Jesus slows the conversation down. He says, why do you call me good? Total side note, this will be helpful. So one of the best things you can do in evangelism is ask a lot of questions. Obviously, we need to tell them the truth. 
But ask questions to understand where they're really coming from. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? And he's probably at least clarifying at least two things. He's saying, when you talk in spiritual terms about goodness, do you know what you really mean by that? Do you realize I'm not just a mere man? I'm not just a nice guy. I'm not just an effective teacher. I'm good in a unique sense that nobody else on planet earth is good. Because there's a place in Romans 3 that says, there is no one good. Left to ourselves, we're all broken. We're all sinful. We're all damaged goods. But Jesus was the only human being that could stand there and say, I am good. And what he really meant was, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. Do you really know who you're talking to? Do you really understand this concept of goodness? And the guy really didn't. See, because we, and when I say we, I mean all human beings, we tend to make God in our own image. Great theologian said, in the beginning, God made mankind in his own image, and people have been trying to pay God back the favor forever. We want to recreate God in our own image. We have a small view of God. He's, he's kind of like me. He's just a little bit bigger. He's a lot like me. He just has a little bit more power, a little bit more knowledge. Now, we don't say that kind of stuff out loud, but that's how we think and feel. Let me tell you the kind of things we do say out loud that betray the beliefs in our heart. Have you ever said or have you ever had a friend say something like this? Well, I could never worship a God who would blank. I could ne- that guy just started this whole thing with hell. I'm already turned off. I'm not listening anymore. I could never worship a God who would send people to hell for eternity. You're making God in your own image. Just because you wouldn't do it or don't think you could do it, you don't get to define God. He gets to define you. This guy had a small view of God. Think about it. How do you tend to make God in your own image? And that's one of the reasons it's so important to immerse your mind in Scripture so that you will start to think of God in biblical terms and not just in your own little terms. Not your family's terms, not your tradition's terms, not political terms. What's the Bible say? And everything else has to submit to that. He had a small view of God. The second thing we're going to see is a small view of sin. So look at what Jesus does next. Verse 20. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this and he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, looking at him with sadness, see the compassion that Jesus has for him as he says this. Now, the guy says, I want assurance of salvation. And Jesus said, that's, I mean, essentially, that's easy. Just keep the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? I mean, this guy's serious. He's, he's, in, he's invested. He really wants this assurance of salvation. And Jesus basically lists off the last five commandments, the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments primarily focus on how we're supposed to love the Lord our God, right? Don't make false images, don't take His name in vain, things like that. The second half of the Ten Commandments are primarily about how you relate to others. Don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, that kind of stuff. Jesus quotes those. Now why? Why do you think He would just quote that half? Well, if you went up to a friend and said, hey, do you love God? Most people, most people, especially in the Southeast, where they say, do you love God? Heck yeah, I love God, man. Of course I love God. Jesus is my homeboy. Something like that, right? We're cool. 
But how do you know? How do you prove it? How do you show it? Are you loving other human beings? It's easy to say, of course I love God. It's a lot harder to say, let me show you by the way I love other people. And if somebody truly loves God, the proof, the root may be your love for God. What's the fruit? It's the way you love people. So that's why Jesus said, keep all those commandments. Now, did you notice the guy's response? He's like, piece of cake, I've been doing it my whole life. Now, maybe externally he had. But if he had spent some time and he had listened to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, some of you are familiar with that, right? You heard it said don't murder, but I tell you, if you even get sinfully angry at somebody, it's like baby murder in the heart. You've basically already done it. You've heard it said don't commit adultery, but if you just look at a woman to lust after her, it's like seed adultery in the heart. You've basically already done it. But Jesus, again, kind of gives him a pass. He says, okay, you've kept all five. Let me just uh, throw out one more thing to you. You're a rich guy, so you got a bunch of stuff. Just sell it all. And then all the money you get, right, when you liquidate it, give it all away to poor people, and then come follow me. And the guy walked away sad. Now, there's a verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. You can go look at it later if you want. And Jesus specifically talking about money, but this applies to anything. He says, listen, you can only serve one master. You can't serve money and God. And there's a great old commentator named Matthew Henry. And he said, this man had money and money had him. You understand? Listen, nothing wrong with money. Money's not bad in of itself. In fact, you've got to have some money to get around. You want to eat lunch today? You need money. And eating lunch is good. Money's not sinful. Being rich isn't sinful. There's a lot of rich people in the Bible that were really godly. This is the only time Jesus said sell everything. So don't turn this into some kind of poverty gospel. That's not what it's about. But it's dangerous to be rich. Because when you have a lot of stuff, the stuff can get you. It can own your heart. That make sense? I, uh, when I first came on staff... I was at a little campus called the University of North Alabama. It's right across the Tennessee line in Alabama. And I was doing a fraternity Bible study. And I'd only been there, I don't know, about a month or two. And there was only one guy that I could tell in the whole fraternity, maybe two, that were Christians. There was this one guy, though, that he liked me. He wanted to meet with me. I think I basically, at that point, was saying I'd disciple him. So he was kind of like the Christian guy that was helping me get into fraternity. And so I'd been doing this Bible study with him and about nine of his friends that he'd invited who probably weren't Christians. And one night, we were about four weeks into the Bible study, and we were just kind of, I, mean, I think we were going through some stuff on the summer of the mount. And he's just asking all these questions. And it's like the more questions he asks, you can tell the more frustrated he's getting. And he's saying, I mean, he's, like, and he's just asking random stuff. You ever had people like that in a Bible study? Like, dude, why, who let this guy in? Why is he talking so much? He's like, what's all this mean? Does this mean I have to, like, pray every waking moment? Like, I have to pray even, like, when I'm in the shower? I was like, no, I didn't. we're not even talking about prayer. Well, you know. And then a few minutes later, he's like, this doesn't mean I have to be like a pacifist, like I have to be against war and I can't join you. He's like, dude, what are you talking I mean, you just tell something was bugging him. And at one point, he literally said, what the hell does God want me from? What does he want from me? And like the other nine dudes in the Bible study, they're like, hey, he's the one Christian here. And he's like cussing in Bible study. And they're all like, dude, this is the weirdest Bible study I've ever been to. <laughs> So finally, I was like, hey, man, it seems like you've got a lot of questions. Something's going on. Why don't you calm down? Let's finish Bible study. Me and you go hang out at Waffle House afterwards. 
So after Bible study, he and I go to get a waffle, and I'm like, what's going on? And I'm asking a lot of questions again, just frustrated, angst. And I finally said, is there any sin in your life that you know is sinful, but that you're refusing to repent of? It's kind of like a secret that you're hiding from other people. And his head kind of dropped, and he looked back up, and he said, yeah. He said, you know, I've started dating this girl. And he said, man, it's gotten really sexual really quick, and I know it's wrong, and I feel super convicted, but I basically feel like I'm addicted, and I can't get out of it. And I said, I think that's what's going on, man, is I think God's convicting you, and he's driving you crazy, and you need to go home and deal with that. So he said he went back to his room that night. He prayed. He said, I'm sorry, God, I repent. I want to make you the master of my life. I don't want to keep chasing this girl. And he broke up with her the next day. Here's the thing. Six months later, he came back to me and said, I thought I was a Christian since high school. But you know what I just realized? I really just came to Christ six months ago. I was lost as a goat. I knew all the answers. But I was living for the world. Most of us, most of us have one thing that's holding us back. Not always. Part of what was so powerful about Jewel's testimony earlier, did you hear she said she was coming into Bible study with all these theological questions? But really the theological questions was about 10% of it. And 90% was more of the trauma and the stuff she was experiencing, the panic. Listen, that's most people in my experience. Listen, there's a place for theological questions. I'm all for it. But just don't use theological questions as a smokescreen for the real issue. I can't, I mean, I've been doing college ministry for about 25 years, mostly with fraternity guys. And I can't tell you how many times they come in and they're like, well, what about predestination and why did God even let Satan exist? And what about the innocent Indian on the island who never hears about Jesus? And then when you really get down to it, it's like, dude, I just love smoking weed and I don't want to quit smoking weed. And it's like, thank you, dude. Couldn't we have talked about that six months ago? And you left this stuff out about the hypothetical Indian on the island. And listen, it's not hurting me, right? I kind of like to talk about stuff like that. That's what I get paid to do. But it's wasting your time. It's hurting your life. Again, I'm not saying it's wrong to talk about that stuff. But it is stupid to talk about that stuff if that's not the real issue in your life. Talk about what matters. Talk about what's holding you back from eternity. Lastly, This guy had a small view of salvation. Small view of God, small view of sin, small view of salvation. Look at verse 24. Jesus looking at him with sadness. And that's how Jesus is looking at some of y'all right now from heaven. Said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, listen, 
When you have a lot of good things, whether it's money, whether it's friends, whether it's smarts, whatever it is, it makes it harder to come for Christ because you start to feel like, I'm doing pretty well. What do I need a Savior for? And sometimes God has to break you down and bring pain and suffering into your life, not because He's angry at you, but out of sadness and compassion to humble you and help you see that your money and your smarts and your friends aren't going to save you in the long run. He's making you desperate, just like He did to the prodigal son last night, to turn you back to come to Him. Now see, and then Peter starts asking questions like, well then, who can be saved? He's like, well, it's impossible for you to save yourself. But with God, all things are possible. And Peter's like, well, I think we're saved. Look at all this stuff we left. And Jesus is giving him assurance. Listen, if the rich young ruler had sold everything he had, was that him earning his way into heaven? No, of course not. What that was, that was the evidence that showed that he had real faith in Jesus. Right? Because for you to sell everything, you better trust, I can't provide for myself anymore, somebody else has got to provide for me, right? And so that would have shown, it would have been the fruit, the evidence of the root of real faith. And so Peter's saying, hey, we left everything. And Jesus says, I know you did, Peter, don't worry. And he said, again, you didn't earn your salvation, you didn't buy your salvation, you didn't work yourself into salvation. But that's the evidence that you had real faith, that you were willing to leave everything and follow me because you know in the long run you're going to get it all back and you're going to get more. Matthew Henry again said this, sincerity is gospel perfection. Do you understand what it means? Listen, you will never be perfect in this life. So don't feel like you have, I'm not perfect, maybe I'm not a Christian. Is there a sincere change? That's the question. Not a playing games change, putting off one or two things so you can play the part. A sincere change. That's the evidence of real salvation. Now, what is the thing in your life that you fear to lose more than anything else? There's another story in the Bible. We're not going to take time to look at it. You can go look at it later if you want to. In John chapter 4, where Jesus has an encounter with a woman who we tend to call the woman at the well. because She was a woman at a well. And when Jesus is talking to her, Jesus never once talked to her about money at all. But if you know this story, he had one main thing he talked to her about. It's like, who are you sleeping with? He said, and he did it a little more creatively than that. He said, hey, go get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, you ain't got a husband. You've had five husbands and you shacked up with a sixth dude now. Well, that's the old English translation, but that's basically what he said. And did you notice this? Jesus talking to the rich young ruler, he never talked to him about his sex life. Only talked to him about his money. Why is that? Because Jesus has x-ray vision. He can see into your heart and he can see what the main issue is. What you're mainly in love with. What you're mainly addicted to. What you're mainly hoping in. What you're clinging to. What you're grasping to. Now see, listen, I don't think the rich young ruler thought, if I have enough money, that'll get me to heaven, right? Because he, he was lacking assurance it wasn't working for him. I don't think the woman in the well thought, if I sleep around enough, that'll get me to heaven. But we do tend to think of things like sex and money, education, smart, work ethic, whatever it may be, as our functional saviors. You understand what I mean by that? Our day-to-day saviors. What's going to give me a good quality life today is enough sex, enough money, enough friends, enough education, enough 
reputation, whatever it may be. And what Jesus is trying to show you is, you know what? It's really not going to make you happy in this life, and it's darn sure not going to make you happy in the next life. And you've got to have enough faith in Christ to give you true satisfaction and significance and security in this life by letting go of whatever the competitors are to trust fully in Him for this life and the next. You can't say, yeah, i got my fire insurance. I'm trusting in Jesus to take me to heaven when I die. But as far as today goes, I'm trusting in money. I'm trusting in working hard. I'm trusting hard in ladies, whatever it is. It will fail you in this life and the next. Your sin won't love you back. Think about this. Imagine that after this you have a little free time. You go back to the room. There's a knock on the door and you open the door and there's Jesus Christ in the flesh, beard, robe, and sandals. And He says, can I come in and have a word with you? And so you're like, uh, yeah, I guess so. And he comes in and he sits in one of those little chairs in the hotel room and you sit down on the edge of the bed and he looks at you and he says, I got one thing I want to ask you about. And remember, he's got x-ray vision to your heart too. What's he going to ask you about? Is it money? Is it sex? Is it weed? Is the approval of others? I, I don't know. And some of them I don't care. Because, guys, there are some sins, just like we talked about last night, that look a lot more scandalous. And there are some sins that look a lot more buttoned up. They'll both send you to the same hell. So whatever it is, you better repent. You better let go. And guys, if that seems overwhelming, if that seems terrifying, let me just remind you of this. Think about all that Jesus let go of and gave up to come pursue you. His pursuit of saving His people cost Him radically. It cost Him dearly. He was willing to give up everything. Heaven. His relationship with His Father. He hung on the cross and cried out. He couldn't even call Him Father anymore. Because at that moment, he wasn't interacting with them like a father, but like an angry judge. Because that's what we deserve, is an angry judge. And he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he suffered hell on the cross for all his people. So that if we put our faith in him, we'll never interact with God like an angry judge again. We will only interact with him like a gracious, merciful, tender, saving father. And He'll bless us in this life. Not always as clearly as we want, but He will. But He will guarantee, hands down, bless our socks off forever and ever and ever and ever. Christians have the greatest retirement plan in the universe. So whatever is the one thing Jesus is putting His finger on in your life and saying, give it up. Go ahead and give it up. Because you're going to get it back maybe in this lifetime, but you're going to get something much better back in the next life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, you're so good. You're so wise. You're so kind. You're so compassionate, Lord. I pray that our fear, I pray that our anger, I pray whatever it is that is holding us back from fully surrendering to you, 
Give us extra grace and help to let go, to release, to trust you. Would you draw many to salvation this morning? For those that might already be saved but struggling with assurance, would you strengthen their sense of assurance? And for those that might be saved and sure but still struggling with some old pet hidden sin, would you let there be a breakthrough of surrender in that specific sin this morning? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching. Thank you.